you please turn with me in your Bibles to Job chapter 20, as we continue in our series through the book of Job. We come this morning to Zophar's speech. This is his second speech. And I've titled the message, What Happens to the Wicked? So hear God's word from Job chapter 20. Then Zophar the Namathite answered and said, Therefore my thoughts answer me because of my haste within me. I hear censure that insults me, and out of my understanding a spirit answers me. Do you not know this from of old, since man was placed on earth, that the exulting of the wicked is short, the joy of the godless but for a moment? Though his height mount up to the heavens and his head reach to the clouds, he will perish forever like his own dung. Those who have seen him will say, where is he? He will fly away like a dream and not be found. He will be chased away like a vision of the night. The eye that saw him will see him no more, nor will his place any more behold him. His children will seek the favor of the poor, and his hands will give back his wealth. His bones are full of his youthful vigor, but it will lie down with him in the dust. Though evil is sweet in his mouth, though it hi- he hides it under his tongue, though he is loath to let it go and holds it in his mouth, yet his food is turned in his stomach. It is the venom of cobras within him. He swallows down riches and vomits them up again. God casts them out of his belly. He will suck the poison of cobras. The tongue of a viper will kill him. He will not look upon the rivers, the streams flowing with honey and curds, He will give back the fruit of his toil and will not swallow it down. From the profit of his trading, he will get no enjoyment. For he has crushed and abandoned the poor. He has seized a house that he did not build. Because he knew no contentment in his belly, he will not let anything in which he delights escape him. There was nothing left after he had eaten. Therefore, his prosperity will not endure. In the fullness of his sufficiency, he will be in distress. The hand of everyone in misery will come against him. To fill his belly to the full, God will send his burning anger against him and rain it upon him into his body. He will flee from an iron weapon. A bronze arrow will strike him through. It is drawn forth and comes out of his body. The glittering point comes out of his gallbladder. Terrors come upon him. Utter darkness is laid up for his treasures. A fire not fanned will devour him. What is left in his tent will be consumed. The heavens will reveal his iniquity, and the earth will rise up against him. The possessions of his house will be carried away, dragged off in the day of God's wrath. This is the wicked man's portion from God, the heritage decreed for him by God. I've heard Christians criticize pastors for teaching and preaching too much about sin and hell. I'm not sure if you're familiar with the old classic movie Pollyanna, where there's this pastor who is portrayed as bringing a spirit of doom and gloom into the community through his fire and brimstone sermons, and the people leave church feeling like they've been trampled in a stampede, and uh, we understand that what they long to hear are words that are cheerful and encouraging Well, what should be our response to such sentiments? First of all, it is possible for sin and hell to be overly emphasized to the neglect of God's love and grace. If all you hear are sermons about how far you fall short of God's glory 
and never hear about the forgiveness of sins through Christ, through faith in him, then something is indeed wrong. There is bad news in scripture about your sinful condition. It's humbling and even grievous, but that's not the entire message of the Bible, not even close, and it's not where you should be left. There's also joy because Christ has dealt with your sin and has done so on your behalf. Through faith in him, you are justified in the sight of God, and through the Holy Spirit, you are new creatures in Christ, no longer slaves of sin, and you need to hear both things. And if all you hear is how bad and worthy of condemnation you are, that can be disheartening and is, in fact, contrary to the gospel. But second, it's possible for God's love and grace to be overly emphasized to the neglect of sin and hell. Or to state the matter differently, you can't really understand God's love and grace while leaving out the reality of your sin making you worthy of hell. Some people want to hear exclusively about God's love and grace. They don't want to hear about their sin. They don't want to hear about how far they fall short of the glory of God. They just want to hear about God's love and his forgiveness. And they will typically agree that to become a Christian, you have to ask God for forgiveness of your sins, but they think that once you've done that, there's really no more need to even think about sin, to talk about it anymore, since we're saved by grace alone. They, they even insist that to talk about it and to talk about the need to strive after obedience implies that we have to do good works to earn God's favor. And you understand that that's basically the argument of the antinomian who doesn't want to even have to think about obedience to God's law. Well, my explanation to those Christians who don't want to ever hear about sin and God's judgment is twofold. First, we still sin. And our sin displeases God. And we're called to obedience and we're called to growth and holiness. Which means that it is our duty as Christ's disciples to figure out what sin still clings to us. Why? That we might repent of it. That we might fight it. And then second, the dynamic in salvation of your sin pointing you to Christ didn't change once you became a Christian. The more you grow closer to Christ, the more you learn what his character is really like and how much you need to change to become like him, the more you will realize how deeply sin is ingrained in you. There is a sense in which this is discouraging and something we don't want to hear about. But then we have to remember what Christ accomplished for us as our Savior and so it is that when we are confronted with our sin and the gospel at the same time, the reality of our sin only shows us how much more we need Christ. To know our sin, it just impresses us even more than before how gracious he really is that he would die for us. When you know Christ as your savior, a growing knowledge of your sin shouldn't put you in the dumps. It should give you joy to think what a great savior you have that he would suffer and die for sinners as needy as you and me. Now, I brought up this matter of sin and hell because Zophar here in his second speech in Job 20, uh, this speech to Job is, what this speech really is, it's, it's another diatribe on how Job is going to hell. It, it's another description of what happens to sinners who come under the judgment of God. Bildad, back in chapter 18, gave us a terrifying description of hell, and he did the same thing as Zophar does here. He indirectly applied what he described to Job. And now in chapter 20 here, we have another portrait of hell, again applied to Job, though this fact is not stated directly. 
And if there are Christians who think that the judgment of God against sin is a topic for only unbelievers to think about, then why has God given us in his scripture this speech of Zophar? We need to wrestle with this because of 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17 says, All scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness. The man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. So Job chapter 20 here is God-breathed. This is from God. God wants us to read this, to hear it, and I'm preaching from it this morning. Now, that doesn't mean that God is endorsing Zophar's application to Job. That it is God-breathed means that we have an accurate account of what Zophar said, first of all. And second, we can compare what Zophar says about the demise of the wicked under God's judgment. We can compare what he says to the rest of Scripture, and he's basically right in his doctrine. We find that again and again with Job's friends. If we just take what they say and, and out of context, so to speak, and, and not be thinking of it as applied to Job, often what they say is, ba- is right on. It's, it's biblical. When a person is living in sin... Apart from Christ, he can expect what Zophar here says, though we would also want to qualify some of what he says, especially, does all of this happen in this life exactly as he says no? Consequently, if what he says is basically true, and since the Holy Spirit recorded it for us, we need to wrestle with what we as believers are supposed to glean from a passage that in many ways doesn't apply to us or to Job in the sense that we are not wicked if we are trusting in Christ. And so this morning we are going to consider, first of all, the content of Zophar's speech in terms of what happens to the wicked under God's disfavor. Second, we will consider why they will be judged, that is, what is the nature of their sin that displeases God. And third, we will focus on what is the intended result of this chapter in terms of its application, uh, specifically to us as believers. So we begin with a survey here of what Zophar says happens to the wicked. And we need to define our terms. Who are the wicked? Well, the wicked are sinners who are not under God's favor. We're talking about sinners who are not redeemed, those who have no hope of eternal life because they are unrepentant sinners living in sin, living in a state of rebellion against God. They are not people of faith. And uh, Zophar, early on in verses 4 and 5, asserts a principle that he believes is timeless, namely the short-lived happiness and joy of the wicked. He admits that the wicked can have their moment of glory. Not everything goes wrong all the time for them. They have times that they exult or rejoice. They know something of joy by means of what is called common grace. Unbelievers know something of the goodness of God in this life, and they don't immediately get the judgment they deserve. Um, This is really the theme of verses 6 through 11. Verse 6 poetically pictures the success of the wicked as he rises in earthly glory up to the heavens, his head to the clouds. Notice the exact wording there of verse 6. Though his height mount up to the heavens and his head reach to the clouds. Now some say this is a description of the wicked man's pride. Uh, Point well taken, that's possible. Undoubtedly, this man does have a pride problem, but I think that this is really a poetic way of saying that the wicked are not exempt from worldly success. 
But his exalting and his joy is cut short, which is the main point. Notice verse 7a, he will perish forever like his own dung. And so we notice this contrast going from the heights of human glory to the sewer. And what happens to dung? It's buried, it's washed down the sewer out of sight. And so then the verses continue, 7b through 9, those who have seen the wicked will say, where is he? He will fly away like a dream and not be found. He will be chased away like a vision of the night. The eye that saw him will see him no more, nor will his place any more behold him. Then we have verse 10, which describes the wicked as sinking so low that his children have become beggars of beggars. His children will seek the favor of the poor. And the wording that his hands will give back his wealth probably hints at the accusation of verse 19 that the wicked are those who crush the poor. They abandon the poor. They steal from the poor. In other words, the wicked man's wealth was built on the backs of the poor. But justice prevails in one of two ways. Either his hands have to give back his wealth as he ends up spending all that he has to try to support his family, or the courts are making him pay back by way of restitution all that was wrongly taken. But the result is that the wicked man's children end up seeking the help of the poor, the very people that their father had abused. And then verse 11 concludes this section with really a summary. It starts out by saying, His bones are full of his youthful vigor, but it will lie down with him in the dust. The wicked man knows what it is to be young and to be strong and successful, but that vigor is soon gone and he passes away. Verses 12 through 18 make the similar point that the wicked man enjoys himself for only a short time. And yet there's a difference between this section of verses 12 through 18 and the previous. In verses 6 through 11, the wicked are enjoying the earth's bounty. In verses 12 through 18, the wicked are enjoying sin. His sin, his sinful life is like this sweet morsel of food where he might think of candy that he holds in his mouth and he's savoring it and relishing it as long as he can. It says, though evil is sweet in his mouth, though he hides it under his tongue, though he is loath to let it go and holds it in his mouth, yet his food is turned in his stomach. It is the venom of cobras within him. Verses 14 through 16, we see again that same principle of the joy of the wicked being temporary, though his demise in this section is taken to a new level. For not only is the wicked man not able to enjoy his sin, it actually becomes repulsive. The food that tastes good turns into poison and is vomited. It says in verses 15 and 16, he swallows down riches, which we take to be as a, a figure of the fact that he loves riches and he, he takes them in and he enjoys them, though he has gained them unjustly, according to verse 19, and thus he vomits them up again. God casts them out of his belly. He sucks the poison of cobras. The tongue of a viper will kill him. Verses 17 and 18 are not quite as poetic. They depict the wicked man not able to enjoy the bounty that comes from farming his fertile land. He will not look upon the rivers, the streams flowing with honey and curds. He will give back the fruit of his toil and will not swallow it down. From the profit of his trading, he will get no enjoyment. The wicked man of verses 20 through 22, another section, a new 
way of looking at him there in these verses. He's a man who has plenty, but he's never content. And even what he has is taken away from him in various ways so that his wealth does not end up being a blessing. Verse 20 says, because he knew no contentment in his belly, he will not let anything in which he delights escape him. Think of that, a person who has everything that he delights in. That sounds like the American dream. But what is described here is a man who is not content. He's always grabbing for more. He's so consumed with wanting more that he's in fact unwilling to give any of it away to those in need. His lack of contentment also means that he is selfishly indulgent to the point of living beyond his means. Notice verse 21, there was nothing left after he had eaten, therefore his prosperity will not endure. There are many people in this world who have more than enough money and income to make a comfortable, content life for themselves, but their greedy, selfish appetites do them in. The wicked man of verse 22 has enough. It speaks of the fullness of his sufficiency, and yet he's in distress because everyone wants a piece of his pie, and some, which are, uh, some of which are willing to even get back what was unjustly and unlovingly taken from them. There are a lot of troubles built into riches. And if, like the wicked man, you're going to build your life on them, you're never going to be content. You're always going to be wanting more and more, even to the, the point of spending everything you have and making yourself poor. Plus, if you have riches, and especially if you've gotten them by abusing others, you will have many enemies. This is what happens to the wicked. Zophar also explains why this will happen by explaining the nature of the wicked man's wickedness, the nature of his demise. Basically, he loves evil and riches and mistreats the poor. In some sense, there is judgment built into these things, but in reality, God is the judge who will bring the wicked to account. Verses 12 through 14 describe the wicked man's love of sin as something like the love of good food that is savored by holding it in our mouths, which is the opposite of having a repentant spirit. This is describing someone who loves his sin, he enjoys his sin, he wants to keep doing it. As he thinks about it, there are no regrets. He's planning on how to do more of it so that he can enjoy himself more. Of course, as Ophar goes on to explain, sin turns into poison and venom in our stomachs. It ultimately does not deliver anything but misery. But the wicked man, for all of that, is deceived into thinking that sin will deliver happiness and he just keeps swallowing it down as though the very next bite will be different than the one previous. We learn in verse 15 that there's a particular sin that is in view here. We are told he swallows down riches. And so the sin being highlighted is the sin of covetousness, a love for riches, uh, where a person idolizes money and the things that it buys. The, the, in the parable of the, of the rich man, remember how Christ says that man's life does not consist in an abundance of riches. Well, for this man, life does consist. For him, his perspective is it does consist in an abundance of riches. Wealth is what he lives for. It's what he thinks gives him security and happiness. And yet Jesus says you cannot serve God and money. And so this wicked man is set clearly on a course of rebellion against God. In verse 19, Zophar openly states, 
the particular sin that he believes Job has committed, although he's too much of a coward to accuse Job straight out. He says, for he has crushed and abandoned the poor. He has seized a house that he did not build. This might, in a sense, be the climactic verse, really, of this chapter. This is really what Zophar believes Job has done, why Job has suffered as he has. The wicked man is one who neglects the poor. Now, neglect can take the form of not helping them in need. And verses 20 through 22 hint at the wicked man not helping the poor. Remember how nothing delightful is allowed to escape him. He holds his, all of his possessions so tightly, not going to let anything go, presumably not even allowing some of it to be given away to those in need. It also says nothing is left after he has eaten. There is no surplus to be shared with others. That's one form of neglect. Neglect can also take the form of direct assaults on the poor through oppressive and dishonest practices. Verse 10 says he will have to give back his, his wealth, presumably to the poor that he stole it from in the first place. Verse 22 pictures those in need coming against him, perhaps out of revenge, but at the very least coming to him for help that is going to empty his pockets. And it's distressing because he doesn't want to help. And they are having to come against him because otherwise they are not going to get any help from him. So one way to answer the question of why this is happening is that this is judgment. And yet the nature of judgment that comes upon the wicked is twofold. First, there are consequences to sin that are natural and that are expected as part of life. For example, if I decide to disobey the authorities and drive faster than the speed limit and crash going around a curve, someone might well say, well, what else did you expect? Such consequences are built into the system, we might say. But second, there are consequences to sin that are directly from God, like Jesus as judge on the last day, sending unrepentant sinners to hell. And we can find references really to both forms of judgment in our text, things that seem to just happen naturally and, and judgment that we are told is coming from God. Verse 10 has the, the wicked man losing his wealth to the point that his children are beggars. We can assume his wealth has been gained in wicked ways because the point is that the injustice is being reversed. Either the man got caught by the authorities and is having to pay restitution. That would be a rather natural form of judgment. It may also be that the man's circumstances have changed because God has reversed his fortunes. The judgment of verses 12 through 18 Ascribed as swallowing riches and then vomiting them up because they have become poison and venom in his stomach is actually directly ascribed to God. Verse 15, he swallows down riches and vomits them up again. God casts them out of his belly. Verse 19 tells us that God has not allowed him to keep and enjoy his riches because his wealth has been gained in the way of abusing his neighbor, greedily refusing to help his neighbor, and even stealing from his neighbor, God is not going to let this wicked man get away with what he has done. This same theme of the inability of the wicked man to enjoy his wealth laid out in verses 20 through 22 is this time portrayed as the natural consequence of his decisions. He's consumed with greed. So he feels the need to buy everything he wants. His wealth makes him the object of attack from those less fortunate. It's not, a, it's not surprising, right, that a person who lives beyond his means would find himself poor. It's also not a mystery that people who have been abused and stolen from would seek to get back what was rightfully theirs. 
verses 23 and following make it clear that in the midst of all of this, that God is the one who is ultimately behind all of the judgment that the wicked man receives. Yes, they are, there are natural consequences, but they are in place because that is how God has ordained it. Ultimately, according to verse 23, it's God's burning anger that accounts for the wicked man's demise. He thinks he can avoid God and accountability to God, but God will hunt him down and kill him like a warrior in battle. All that he has in this life will be taken away. Notice verse 27, how both God and man are against him. The heavens, pointing to where God dwells, will reveal his iniquity. All of man's sin will be exposed and judged, but also refers to people on earth rising up against him. Ultimately, it's God's wrath that is at work. Verse 29, this is the wicked man's portion from God, the heritage decreed for him by God. So why will the wicked man lose all that he has, soul and body? Because he's rebelled against God. He's failed to be reconciled to God in the way of repentance and faith. And this, you understand, coming from Zophar, is a condemnation of Job. Job is the one who supposedly has lost everything because he is the wicked man. Job is the one who is under God's judgment and going to hell. Which brings us now to our third point, and the result in the sense of what is to be the result of all of this for us, for our lives. So this third point is about application. So first, let's go back to the issue raised in the introduction as to the relevance of passages like this about sin and judgment for us as believers. As you read this passage, you should not immediately think, well, there's nothing here for me because I'm not the wicked man. It's true that You and I are not this wicked man, though we still do wicked things. By God's grace, we've confessed our sins. By God's grace, we are looking to Jesus Christ as our atoning sacrifice for sin. We trust God's word that Jesus' death on the cross, there he was paying the penalty of our sin and freeing all who receive him as Savior from this judgment of God's burning anger and wrath coming against them. Your identity as a believer in Christ is not a wicked man. No, you are a new creature in Christ. You are a child of God. At the same time, a saved sinner who still sins. Even though you are justified in the sight of God by faith, it's good to consider what is your relationship to riches and to your neighbors. Have you loved your neighbor as yourselves in your business transactions? Have you built your wealth in honest and loving ways or in ways dishonest and oppressive? Do you love the world's wealth and seek it at all costs? Has the world's wealth become an idol that you trust to make you happy? Are you content with what God has given you or are you greedy, wanting more and more and even making foolish financial decisions because you have to have what you want right now? We need to ask these probing questions of ourselves because we are saved by grace. And we want to make sure that all that we are doing, we are honoring our Savior. We want to serve him out of gratitude. And if you and I find ourselves falling short of the glory of God, then we must seek forgiveness of our sins through Christ. And then having confessed your sins, you must believe the promise of the gospel that you are forgiven, that God's wrathful anger doesn't burn against you. And by the way, it is also good for us to consider the wrathful judgment of God as Zophar describes it. 
though we have been delivered from this wrath by faith, it's good to think about it because it reminds us of what we in and of ourselves deserve. It reminds us of what Christ endured for us. And we need that because our tendency is to think that sin is really no big deal. And our tendency is to minimize what Christ did on our behalf. But passages like this that picture God as filling the sinner with his burning anger, shooting him with arrows, filling him with terrors, stripping him of everything that he enjoyed in this life should humble us. It should tell you and me our sin is serious. And what's described here is what we deserve. And this is what Christ endured when on the cross he cried out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And so being reminded of the judgment of God should make you thankful for your salvation. And the more you realize what you have been delivered from, the more you will rejoice in God's grace to you in Christ. For us as believers, to reflect on God's judgment is not distressing. If we're thinking correctly, if we're thinking in line with the gospel and what Christ has done, it's, it's actually inspiring, it's encouraging. It is the context for us to appreciate the gospel and increase our love for Jesus. The same time to read of God's judgment should inspire us to reach out to the lost. Zophar was wrong to tell all of this to Job as the explanation for what was going on in his life. Now, it certainly looked like Job was under God's wrath, and it can look like that for us, too, if we only consider things as they appear outwardly. But behind the scenes, Job and we are repenting of our sins. We we are trusting God's grace in Christ, and so we are right with God. But there are many people around us who are not right with God and who match with what Zophar has said. And their futures are thus terrifying. And this should prompt us to witness about Jesus too, our unsaved friends and relatives and neighbors that all might believe in him <coughs> and be spared. And let me end this morning by rebuking Zophar. Now, he's not here to hear the rebuke. Um, God, will hear, uh, God will actually rebuke him later, and Zophar will repent. But if Zophar were here, this is something dreadful that he is doing that needs to be confronted. He is confronting Job with no gospel. Think of that. He is confronting Job, and there's nothing here of the gospel. And we ought to be thinking, well, is Job without hope? Is there no love for Job? Let's say Job does ex match exactly with Zophar's wicked man. Why is there nothing here of how Job might escape judgment? Does Zophar not believe in the coming Christ? Does he not believe in God's provision for sin in the coming Christ? Does Zophar think that some sinners are so bad that they are outside the reach of God's grace? Zophar writes as though Job's judgment under the wrath of God is sealed. It's a done deal. And what we find based on verses 2 and 3 is that Zophar is writing in anger. He is offended. Job has insulted him. Not actually, but that is how Zophar feels. Job ended chapter 19 just before this by actually saying Zophar and his friends, they need to be afraid of God's judgment for their wrongful assessment of him. He is a man who he says he has just described, a man who knows that his Redeemer lives. And by faith looks forward to the day of seeing him and experiencing the salvation that belongs to those who trust in him. Rather than rejoicing with Job over this profession of faith, engaging him about his faith, Zophar is insulted by Job's rebuke and warning against him. 
And so chapter 20 is really a personal attack in which Zophar is going to make certain Job knows he is the one deserving judgment. And this can happen with us. What a sad, sad state of affairs it is when our relationship with unbelievers becomes antagonistic and nasty. And all we do is condemn and leave out the hope of the gospel. One commentator pointed out an aspect of the Hebrew in verses 23 through 28 that really the translation should not be what will happen, but expressions here of Zophar's wishes. So that verse 23 would read this way, to fill his belly to the full, may God send his burning anger against him. And skipping down, may a bronze arrow strike him through, may a fire not fanned devour and what is left in his tent be consumed. May the heavens reveal his iniquity, and may the earth rise up against him. Are we ever to wish the destruction of the wicked? Now, we are to pray imprecatory prayers. The Bible presents those to us as legitimate prayers where we pray for, what, the end of wickedness, but to the glory of God. We're never to pray for revenge that is motivated by personal hate. And you can know that your attitude is not right if you are unable to rejoice over the thought of a wicked man being saved. Yes, we are to long for, yes, we are to long for an end to all opposition to God, an end to all injustice. But our first course of action should be to long for and to pray for the conquering of sinners in what way? Through violence? No, through salvation in Christ. Shame on you, Zophar, for holding out no hope to Job, whom you believe is unsaved. Shame on you for making this a personal matter and relishing Job going to hell. Hell is real, and hell is where we all deserve to go, but Christ delivers sinners from hell. And how you and I are to view ourselves in relation to sinners is really modeled for us, I think, in, in a good way in the words of the Apostle Paul in 2 Corinthians 5.20. And I want to end with reading this verse, 2 Corinthians 5.20. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. Amen. Let us pray. Father in heaven, we are reminded in this chapter of the judgment that the wicked deserve. Father, the judgment that we in and of ourselves deserve. We're, we are reminded of the seriousness of sin. We are reminded of the judgment that ultimately Christ took upon himself as our Savior. Father, we thank you that there is forgiveness of our sins. What an amazing thing it is that we could be delivered from such judgment. Father, this passage shows us just how gracious you are and how precious our salvation is in Christ. And so, Father, we are encouraged this morning. But, Father, we also recognize we sin. And, uh, Father, we thank you that there is forgiveness. And we thank you for this reminder of our need to turn to Christ because there is no hope in and of ourselves of escaping judgment, but there is in Christ. And, Lord, give us a spirit of love and concern for those who are the wicked man, for those who have not repented of sin and who are in rebellion against God. And Lord, we pray that they would experience the grace that we have. May we be instruments, may we be ambassadors, uh, appealing to these sinners, imploring them 
that they might receive salvation that is available in Christ. Lord, we thank you for the gospel. We thank you for even these passages about sin and hell that remind us of exactly uh, how sufficient your grace is. We pray these things in Jesus' name.